let's hope the IT troubles are over for now. Uh, a question for you kids. What is the Old Testament about? This is, the, this is one of those classic questions. Very easy answer. What is the Old Testament about? Yes, that's right. The Old Testament is about Jesus. But we're in the New Testament today. So why am I asking about the Old Testament? Because this passage is so full of the Old Testament. It is, it is just chock full of Old Testament stuff. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Jesus doesn't come out of nowhere. He's not just a good guy who shows up and builds up a bit of a following. He is, he's been uh, kind of signaling his coming. He's been prophesying his coming. He's been getting people ready for his coming over thousands of years. And he came at the right time at the proper time, in the fullness of time. And so today we're seeing all things come to fulfillment, to be coming together in these climactic moments. And one of the nice summaries that we use to profess our faith to, because, you know, the Bible's a big book, and so we like to shrink it down into some manageable, a few sentences to kind of summarize the whole. And one of those summaries that we use, we call the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't actually written by the apostles, but it is meant to be a summary of the teaching of the apostles. And the Apostles' Creed says, in the, in the bit about Jesus, it says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The last couple of times that we've been in John, we've been looking at the bit where he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was, remember, Jesus was arrested by the religious leaders. They were upset with him because of the things that he said and the following that he was accruing. And so the religious leaders managed to get Judas to betray him. They went out, they arrested him, they pushed him through this kind of sham trial uh, with the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, and then they took him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, remembering once more, that the Jewish people, the, that nation, that area, was under the thumb of the Romans. The Romans were the occupying force in those days. A fun, fun fact I learned, actually, uh, is that the Jews, some Jews, actually invited the Romans to come initially because they were suffering somebody else's oppression. And so they said, hey, Romans, why don't you come and help us out and kick these guys out? And so the Romans did, and they decided to stay. Um, so that's a lesson learned. <laughs> so Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor in that region at that time. And Jesus uh, needed to be tried under Pontius Pilate because the Jews didn't have permission to put people to death at that time. So they twisted Pilate's arm. They twisted Pilate's arm to get him to pronounce the, the, the verdict that he would be killed. Pilate pronounced three times that he found no guilt in Jesus. Three times. But they twisted his arm and eventually he acquiesced. And so he handed Jesus over. And that's where our passage is picking up this morning, where that permission was given. And we are, on, we are now looking at those climactic moments of the whole book. In some sense, climactic moments of the whole Bible. Coming together in these moments. 
fulfilling everything that had come before. So we're working our way through this passage, and I thought the creed was a really helpful way to break down this passage, because our passage talks about how he was crucified, how he died, and how he was buried. And so that's going to be our three headings, crucified, died, and buried. Now, we can't get into every nook and cranny of this passage. It's a fairly long passage, a lot in there. So if you do have a particularly burning question, please send it through. In our first section, Jesus is crucified. Crucified, of course, refers to the Roman practice of crucifixion, where you would put somebody up on a cross to kill them. It's a form of execution. This would probably just be a historical novelty if it were not for the fact that our Messiah was crucified. But now, crucifixion is one of those things that most Christians probably know a whole bunch of little bits of information about, which we'll cover in a moment. What happened? Jesus, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. So what we see here is that Jesus carries out his own cross, uh, probably not the upright of the cross, probably just the, the, the cross member. The uprights would have likely already been in place on the hill where they normally did crucifixions. And so likely he carried out the, the kind of the T, the cross bar of the cross out. And we know from the other Gospels that he actually got some help because he was struggling with that. He has already been beaten at least twice by this point, maybe more. He's been flogged within an inch of his life. So then he is crucified there with others, with criminals, which fulfills Scripture. They seem to have a certain place outside the city where this happened. And uh, Romans like to use crucifixion as a bit of a warning. You know, this could happen to you. And so it's done in a public place. And as we find out a little bit later, they put up signs to say what it is that these people have been crucified for. So Jesus is crucified there. He is nailed to the cross through his hands and his feet. He's probably naked, adding to the shame of the whole affair. He hung there on that cross. And as we read, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Nazareth, King of the Jews, sorry, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I almost forgot about this before we, before we move on. <clears throat> this is an artist's rendition of what they think it looked like in that area. I, I don't know how well you can see it, but there's the, the temple at the top at the, of the hill of Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Uh, and then there's the, the temple courts around. There's the fortress of Antonia on the side here where there was a garrison of Roman soldiers kind of on, on hand. And then the city was around the kind of arrayed around the temple. But then outside the city walls, they reckon that this is the area where they would have crucified people, which would have been called Golgotha. And then later on, we talk about the tomb. Somewhere in this region, there was probably... The, the garden and the tomb that they're talking about. But as is kind of unsurprising in this, in this day and age and, and with the Jewish kind of views, they want to keep that death stuff outside the city, keep the tombs outside the city. You don't want to have dead bodies and stuff in, in your city. 
So while Jesus is there hanging on that cross, there's a notice hanging over his head. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it's written in three languages so that even if you didn't speak Aramaic, which is the kind of the common tongue of the Jews, you were probably going to speak either Latin or Greek, the two main languages of the Roman Empire. So it was clear. It was a public notice. It happened in display. Oh, everybody and anybody who came along could see it. And if you could read, you'd be able to read that sign. But we see here that uh, also the Jewish leaders, they didn't like this. They didn't like the fact that, that Pilate put king of the Jews. They said, you need to say he alleged, you know, he, he, he said he was king of the Jews. They felt offended by this. But Pilate sticks to his guns. No, I've written that. That's what I want. That's how it's going to stay. And in some sense, it, it might be a bit of a mocking thing. Remember, he's not happy with the Jews and the way they've tried to twist his arm. And so, excuse me, it's, it's almost like a mocking thing. Here, look at what has happened to your king. But a question that probably didn't cover, come into your mind, but the Bible answers anyway, is what happened to Jesus' clothes? I'm sure you were very keenly wondering what happened to the clothes of criminals. <laughs> but th this is important. This little, this little story about his clothes is quite important. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes. A, a perk of the job, it seems, they get to take any personal effects of the people they're executing. They divided it into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And the, the fact that they share out the clothes, remember, they didn't have mass-produced clothes like we do. You couldn't go down to the op shop and get, you know, 10 shirts for $10 or something. You know, this was, uh, it was a hard, uh, extensive process to produce each piece of clothing that existed. Before the days of mechanization and, and, and the materials that we use, you imagine having to, like, tease out the thread for every piece of, of cloth and then weave all those threads together without any mechanical help other than maybe some rudimentary looms and things. So clothes were expensive. They were valuable. And so these guys parcel out the clothes because it's valuable. But they end up with one piece remaining that they can't divide into four. It's one piece. It's probably a high-quality piece, given that it's all one, all built into one together. And so what do they do? Well, they, they cast lots. They throw the die, you know, who's going to pick the short straw, that kind of thing, to find out who is going to get to take this cloth. But in doing so, what do they do? They fulfill Scripture because the Scripture tells us that they will divide my garments and cast lots for my garment. It's all happening just as God predicted through his prophets, through David, the, the psalmist, it's all coming together just as was planned. Also from the cross, Jesus cares for his mother. There's this interesting little sequence here where Jesus sees his mother and his aunt and, and uh, a couple other Marys standing there with the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple, the disciple whom he loved, seems to be a, a name that John, the author of this book, gives to himself he doesn't like putting himself into the story. And so when he has to be put in the story, he refers to himself in this way as the beloved disciple. 
When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. So here is Jesus caring for his mother. Here is Jesus fulfilling the command, honor your mother and father that you may live long in the land. He is fulfilling his, his duty as an older son to make sure that his mother was taken care of. Now, Jesus did have uh, other siblings, particularly brothers, and we don't know why the, you know, Mary didn't come under their care. In all likelihood, it's got something to do with the fact that Jesus is is there in, in Jerusalem, Mary's there in Jerusalem, and so his brothers are probably back in Capernaum, where their hometown, doing their own thing, quite likely, or, or, or nowhere, no, nowhere to be found. Or, or it could be something to do with the fact that at this time, we're not sure whether or not his brothers were on board with him and his ministry. Later on, we know that some of them definitely are. They become leaders in the church. But at this stage, we don't know what the story is with the brothers and it looks like Mary is there with the disciples. It doesn't say in so many words that she was a disciple, but the fact is that she is there with them. In, in other parts of the scriptures, Jesus kind of holds Mary at arm's length when she tries to interfere with his ministry. For instance, when they come to carry him away when he's teaching, they say, oh, he's crazy, and they come to try and, and, and take him away. And he says, no, no, this is my mother and my brothers and my sisters, referring to the people who were there who were being taught by him. And so Jesus has this kind of appropriate distance because um, Mary was trying to interfere with the ministry of God through Jesus. But in this moment, we see here that it's not as though he didn't love her or care for her. Of course he did. And there's something special about the fact that it seems that she is being brought in to the group of disciples with these other faithful women there. The faithful women don't get as much airtime as the, as the, as the 12 disciples and, and, and other people who believe in Jesus, but they are no, nonetheless valuable parts of Jesus' followers. Jesus fulfilled the command, even from the cross, to honour your mother and father. Then Jesus died. Jesus died. Jesus, knowing that all was finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Isn't it interesting there how Jesus said, knowing that all was now finished. Jesus was on God's mission, doing what was needed. He was on track, even when he hung there on the cross. And when he gave up his spirit, it was not taken from him. He gave it up. This is not a story of, of, of a guy who gets railroaded and, uh, and taken out. This is a guy who came and lived and died all in accordance with God's will. He went to the cross because he wanted to go to the cross, because he wanted to obey the Father and to bring salvation to his people. He was fulfilling 
the plan, fulfilling the prophecies, fulfilling Scripture all the way through. Even in the book of John, we have heard this kind of, this reference of the coming hour. And here we see that culmination of the hour being completed. He finishes his mission. He accomplishes salvation. He makes atonement with his life. But why did Jesus have to die? That's something that we haven't really asked. Like, obviously, Jesus does die in this passage, but, and it is fulfilling the Scriptures, but why? Why did Jesus have to die? This passage is the capstone of a whole bunch of stuff that has come before. One of the key reasons why Jesus had to die is because of the enmity between God and man. The enmity between God and humanity. Because humanity was separated from God. God is the God of love. God is our creator. God is the sustainer of all things. God is all that is good and wonderful and beautiful. But we have been separated from him through the rebellion of humanity. But God, being rich in mercy, being rich in love, he wanted to reconcile the world to himself. He wanted to rescue people from their plight and renew the broken world. And so his first stage of that plan was to pick a people through whom he would bring salvation. He picked Abraham. And then through Abraham, he worked in Israel. And he used Israel as his, as his bed, so to speak, his his, his groundwork to lead up to the coming of Christ. They were example, they were shadow, they were forerunners to prepare the way and so that Christ could come into the world and disarm death by making atonement with his life. Jesus came to riv- live the righteous life. He came to herald the coming kingdom of God where this reconciliation would happen. He came to train kingdom workers who would build this kingdom and establish it through the spreading of the word of God. Jesus came to make atonement with his life. When we think about atonement, um, if, you, if you watch movies and things, often the atonement comes uh, as something like, uh, you know, you do a great and mighty deed that kind of makes up for your past failures. But here, Jesus is not somebody who comes to to do a great and mighty deed to make up for his past failures. He comes and does a great and mighty deed that covers over our past failures. But the thing about atonement is that atonement requires life. Life for a life. It requires a life to be given up in order to save a life. Because the wages of sin is death. And all humanity is in sin. We all sin in some way or other. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And so, Jesus needed to come and to make atonement with his life. Now, in theory, I could go and find somebody, if I've sinned against God and I owe God my life. In theory, I could go and find somebody who would take my place and who would die for me. But the problem is that that person is a sinner as well, and they need to have atonement made for them. But Jesus is the one who comes in and who dies in the place of others, but his sacrifice is perfect because he was perfect. He doesn't need to make atonement. He doesn't owe God 
life because of the wages of sin. But the fact is also that he is God himself. He was the perfect sacrifice and he was God in one. He was the perfect God-man, the full and whole sacrifice that would be sufficient, not just for one person, but for all who would come to him. One of the ways that atonement is kind of symbolized in the Old Testament is through the Passover lamb. In Egypt, when they were escaping from Egypt and God was pouring out his wrath against Egypt, the Israelites had to take the lamb and kill the lamb and take the blood and put the lamb blood on the doorposts. And because of the, the death that that lamb suffered, people were saved. There was a life given so that people could be saved. The blood was a covering for the people. Remember, God's wrath is good. It's not like God's a vengeful God on the warpath and he gets irritated. No, he is a good and faithful God, but he is just and he has a proper hatred of sin, a proper rejection of all that is unholy. He has a proper desire for justice to prevail. We think that we, when, when you see wrong happening, when you see you know, criminals getting off the hook, when you see people getting away with, with hurting those around them, that our sense of justness is provoked and we want to make things right. But God's justice is, is even more so. If you think about how much we desire justice when we see miscarriage of justice, imagine how much more so God desires justice with his perfect justice. And so atonement needed to be made so that justice could be done, so that God could show his love and his mercy and his justice all in once. At the cross, love and justice meet. And that's why Jesus had to die, so that, so that justice could be done and grace and mercy could be poured out. God shows his love through this cross. But what do you do with this? Jesus had to die. Jesus came to die. But what, do you, what do you do with this? Well, you believe it. You trust that this is what happened for you. It's like allegiance. You, you know, you, you might have your, your favorite footy team and you back that team. You, know, you want them to win. You want them to prevail. You, you wear their colors because you're backing them. You have an allegiance to them. And so when we, when we come into faith, when we come to Jesus, we are backing him. We wear his colors. We get on his team. But it's not just a, a fickle thing where you, know, you can just change at whim. No, this is a thing where we go all in where we believe and trust in him, that he will prevail. And this is what we do when we first come to faith, when you first become a Christian, but it doesn't stop there. This is the perpetual pattern of the Christian life, that we will be continually, perpetually coming back and putting our faith and trust that we will be built up in faith and trust. The temptation is to wander away. The temptation is to be distracted by other things going on. The temptation is that it's too hard and we just kind of want to give it up. 
But that's why it is so important for us to perpetually come back and to know this afresh. And it is also important for us to come back because we keep sinning. We keep sinning even though we've been forgiven and cleansed. We know that the sin nature still affects us. And so we must perpetually come back and be reminded of our need for cleansing. We must perpetually come back and be refreshed with the good news that the sin is atoned for in Jesus Christ. Interestingly, they speared Jesus while he was up there on the cross. It was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Now, we're not quite sure what it means by special Sabbath. Bible scholars like to argue about these things. But the point here is that there's something special about the the coming day and they didn't want to have to deal with the bodies left on the cross. We're not... With the timeline and everything, some people like to think that Jesus is being crucified at the same time as the Passover, lambs are being sacrificed for the festival. Some people think that 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 has actually happened the day before when they had the Lord's Supper. Not 100% sure. But the point here is that Jesus is our Passover lamb and that... The religious leaders, once again being sticklers for the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law, they don't want to have to deal with dead bodies. They don't want the land to be cursed because God says that the land will be cursed if you leave dead bodies hanging on a tree overnight. So they're trying to stick this out, especially at this time of their special festival with the Passover. They wanted to be sure that they could deal with the bodies that day and not have to worry about them for the next few days, right? The other thing you need to remember is that in the Jewish counting of days, the next day starts at sundown. And so, when they say, you know, the special Passover, um, the next day was to be a special Sabbath, what they mean is, if you, let's say, sundown is six o'clock, they're saying that at six o'clock it will be a special Passover, a special Sabbath. So, we need to deal with it now. We don't want it to kind of, to to go past that. They didn't want to have to worry about it the next day or in that evening or whatever. They wanted to kind of get it over and done with so that they could go off and do their preparations. So the soldiers came. They got permission to say, we're going to make this quick, make sure that uh, we get rid of these these criminals, including Jesus. So they got permission to uh, speed up the process. So the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead and they did not break his legs. Now you might be asking yourself, well, why are they breaking the legs? How does that help? Well, when you're crucified, when you're hanging off your arms, it kind of crushes your your ribcage. You can't breathe very well. And so... The way that you would die in crucifixion was not less so about the wounds in your hands or what they'd done to you beforehand. It was almost, it was just a waiting game of waiting to die of asphyxiation through exhaustion. Because in order to breathe, you would have to push against the, your feet, which has been nailed to the wood, to lift your body up so that you could breathe. And so by coming along and breaking their legs, it meant that they would not be able to push themselves up to breathe. 
But when they came to Jesus to do this, they found that he had already died. And so the scriptures are once again fulfilled because they didn't break any of his bones. This is a reference to the Passover lamb. When they had the Passover meal and they would take the lamb and eat the lamb, they were not to break any of the lamb's bones. And here is Jesus, our Passover lamb, who had none of his bones broken. Instead, they took a, a spear and they, and they basically made sure that he was already dead by piercing his side with the spear. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And so they're not quite sure where this kind of water came from. Uh, some people believe it was pericardial fluid that can uh, form around the heart. And so when his side was pierced, a clear water-like liquid would come out as well as the blood. Why is this mentioned here? I can think of a few reasons. One, it reminds us that this really happened. Jesus was a real man who really died. He didn't just swoon on the cross. He wasn't in a coma. He was dead. They pierced his side to make sure. It reminds us that this was a, a real thing, that there's like real medical reasons why this would happen. And it reveals to us with the, the historicity of the account. And if it wasn't just for that, remember after this, John goes on to say, look, there was an eyewitness and I'm testifying. There's an eyewitness. He really saw this happen and he, he, you can go and talk to him basically. But it's also symbolic in the sense of it's the, it's the cleansing blood and water of Christ. The blood that covers and the water that cleanses. Or some people have even seen some significance in this because in John's gospel, sometimes the, the water is associated with the coming of the Spirit. And it's almost as though the, the pouring out of Jesus' blood also brings the pouring out of the Spirit. Do with that what you will. Here we have Jesus fulfilling the, the prophecy once again. They will look on him whom they have pierced. And lastly, we see that Jesus is buried. Jesus is buried. Two blokes take it upon themselves to deal with Jesus' body. They seem to have the wealth and the means to be able to get the body and put it in the tomb. Joseph was a wealthy man, we're told, from one of the other Gospels. But they're on the, they're on the clock. They want to get it done. They know that there's only a limited amount of time. They know that Pharisees wanted, and the Jewish leaders wanted this all over and done with. So Joseph Arimathea goes gets permission from Pilate, comes back, takes the body... Nicodemus has gone out and got a bunch of uh, spices and stuff to be able to anoint the body in the traditional way for the Jews. Sundown is fast approaching. And so Joseph, this guy who's kind of been a believer on the quiet, we're not quite sure uh, why he's kind of keeping it down low, maybe because he's worried about his prestige and his position in society. But we know that Nicodemus was a guy who, who had a lot to lose and and he's a guy who had come to faith in Jesus. In the opening verses of John, we were told that, that his own did not receive him, that there would be a great many who did not receive Christ. But we get throughout the pages of John, this small number of those who will receive him. And Nicodemus is one of those ones who does receive him. And it comes at 
comes at a cost for Nicodemus, but here we see he is being faithful. He is sticking with Jesus even when he's putting his reputation on the line. He is caring for the body of his Christ. But in doing this, in taking the body and burying it in Joseph's freshly prepared tomb, it is fulfilling Scripture once again, fulfilling Scripture once again. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, a new tomb which no one had ever laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. It was ready to go. It was nearby. They put him there. But this fulfilled prophecy. In Isaiah 53 verse 9, we were told that he, this servant of God, was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So here we have Jesus who is crucified between two criminals, with the wicked, but then he is buried with the rich in his death, in the rich man's tomb, anointed by a rich man with oils and spices and wrapped in linen. Just a, a little kind of interesting aside here. You see that Jesus is buried outside the town. Um, you know, this was the Jewish practice. They, you know, dead bodies were considered unclean. And so they would you know, put the bodies outside the town. But interestingly, after Christian Christianity spread and churches started to pop up around the place, in many cultures, you, you might be I'm thinking especially of England, where churches were built... They would have the graveyard around the church, which would be absolutely crazy for, a, if you imagine, a Jewish person building a synagogue. They wouldn't put graveyards around their place of worship. And yet, that's what the Christians did. They put graveyards around their place of worship. In fact, when you go to many of the great old churches, there'll be plaques in the floor, you know, so-and-so's buried here, under the floor of the church, or under, you know, the pulpit, or under uh, the, the place where they do communion. There is... Because... For Christians, death has a whole new meaning. Firstly, we are joined with those who have gone beyond. We are one church, even though some of us are not here yet. There is those here on the earth, and there are those who have gone before us. But we are one people, all of whom will be raised on the last day. And so there's a beautiful kind of symbology in the fact that if you go to some of these old churches, they've surrounded with a graveyard of all those who will rise on the last day, those people who will return. That's just a little aside that I thought you might find interesting. But for here, what we're talking about now, we have Jesus outside the city. Jesus outside in his tomb, killed and buried. And for the Jews on this day, they had no visions of resurrection. They didn't have, uh, for many of them, they had this idea of a, of a future resurrection but they didn't have any hope for Jesus with resurrection. The Jewish leaders thought they'd finally dealt with the problem. He's dead now. We don't have to worry about him. How little did they know? And then the, the disciples, of course, feel the great loss of losing their rabbi, their teacher. They thought they'd lost him forever. So his body is wrapped in a cloth and put in that tomb. What we have seen unfold across these pages is a continual perpetual reminder that all of this fulfilled God's plan. 
It fulfilled the scriptures that had come before. It all took place in the fullness of time. In Isaiah 53, once more, it says it was the will, the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord, so sorry, and yeah, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How can this be? How can this be? It was the Lord's will to crush him. It was part of God's plan. It wasn't an accident. We, we sang before, uh, man of sorrows. We also, we also sang, um, the father turned his face away. The father didn't turn his face away as if he kind of re- didn't like what he was doing. It was, the, that language is euphemistically kind of referring to the fact that he, he died on the cross. He was made sin. He was under God's wrath. He was uh, felt abandoned on the cross. But it wasn't outside of God's plan and purpose and desire. The scriptures tell us it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer, because it brings us salvation. But through this, the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Here's the offering for sin that has been made for us. And interestingly, it says, the Lord will prolong his days. If somebody has been crushed, if he's been made an offering for sin, if he's died in our place, how can he prolong his days? Because it's not over yet. The story is not over yet. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. This is, an awful, this is an awful chapter in terms of all the horrible things that happen, the crucifixion of our Lord. But this means that he will justify many. It means he can justify you. You can be made just. You can be made right with God through everything that happened to Christ, through him bearing your iniquities. So we can give thanks to God for this. We can, we can rejoice in it. And if you have not yet been justified, if you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, today is the day for you to do that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this good news. This good news that, that after he has suffered, that he will see the light of life. We thank you, Lord, that through Jesus' death there comes life. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, that Jesus comes to justify many, that through that awful, awful cross, through that pain and suffering, life was brought to your people. We thank you, Lord, that he has borne our iniquities, that he has made atonement, that he is our Passover lamb. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that he has fulfilled all righteousness, he's fulfilled the prophecies, that it has all been uh, the fulfillment of your plan to save your people. Lord, please keep us from being prideful in receiving this good news. Lord, it's nothing that we did to receive it. It is only by your grace and mercy. And so this morning here, Lord, we rest in that grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Amen.